listener production. Shares, Market. the S&P, the ISX stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Why is it special? Well, partly because Andrew Page is here with me. Ram, g'day. I'm glad I can make it special, mate. I try my hardest. Um, yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm very, very well. Thank you, mate. I have absolutely no complaints whatsoever. Uh, it's Sunday, so Sunday's always good. You're out of bed, you're up, you're busy, you're doing things, yeah? Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> You're still. I mean, it depends how good the Sundays go. I, I, I do enjoy a bit of a sleep in and a slow start. <laughs> Not just on a Sunday, frankly, but yeah, you, you've got more license to do it on a Sunday. <laughs> I, I'm mindful of our listeners saying, "Hey, can you release it earlier on a Sunday so I can go for a run and listen to you?" I'm like, we're well, there doing that. We're laying in bed doing our thing. It's mm-hmm. uh it's a, it's a hell of a thing, mate. Yeah. Um, we've got some great questions this week, so we might just kick straight into it. Uh, first one, of course, mate, is is what's what's wrong, man? Uh, it's a private online investment club. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It um, is. Uh, can I tell you that the overwhelming evidence is still people like the joke. I'm sorry, for you. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Uh, we, we, all, have- we all see. We all see what we want to see in the data, which is <laughs> just how. Hey, it is. There's, a, there's a reason I'm uh, the one who's. <laughs> Managing the questions. Um, we got we got a question to kick off from Graham, mate. He says, hi, guys. Love the pod. I've been investing for more than 40 years in various forms. Property, shares, funds via super, and yes, Ram, even crypto, says Graham. Mm-hmm. He then puts very small percentage in brackets. Over that time, he says, I realized I suck at picking stocks. I started investing in blue chips, then went for smaller caps, had a number of failures that I didn't see coming. He mentions HIH Insurance and RCR Tomlinson. I now have most of my funds invested in ETFs, he says. One of my concerns with ETFs, asks Graham, is that an individual or fund with access to significant cash could buy or sell shares in the ETF based on economic news or a significant event that hasn't flowed into the market, i.e. the underlying index, before being priced correctly by the ETF. Assuming any price difference between the buying and selling of shares in the ETF and the buying and selling of shares in the underlying shares themselves is passed on to the remaining ETF shareholders. Questions then. Am I correct, asks Graham, in assuming I'm not relying on other individuals selling shares in the ETF for me to be able to buy them as the size of these ETFs continues to grow? Question one. Hmm. Andrew? Yeah, good question. Um... So the liquidity is never going to be an issue and mm-hmm. it's not going to be an issue because um, ETFs have what are called market makers. So they actually participate in the secondary market mm. and they're not idiots, right? So they, they, <laughs> they're, they're, they're going to make sure there's no real arbitrage opportunities there and any arbitrage will be, that is there will be very hard to find mm. and exploit, certainly at scale. So you're always going to find that the, the unit price matches very closely with the underlying um, and you're always going to have liquidity to get in or out unless very unusual circumstances. No one's really going to be able to front run big things on the market. I mean, markets are very efficient at, <laughs> at these kinds of things. So, uh, you know, it, it's the same can be true for, for an individual share, right? It's, it's like, well, couldn't someone get hold of the news earlier? Even if it's been publicly disclosed, they just see it mm-hmm. first, right? And act fast. And again, you might be at work or living your life and there's people just around the clock watching this or have systems that watch. It's just, you can't, I think it's always a fallacy to think if I was just a bit closer, I could, I could act, you know, I, I could, mm-hmm. there's going to be a rush for the exit, but I can be one of the first ones out kind of thing is, is always a precarious proposition for me. 
So look, of all the things to worry about in investing, I think any reasonably capitalized backed ETFs like your Vanguards, you know, mm. all of these kinds of ones, I, I, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it whatsoever. Yeah, me either, mate. You're absolutely right. Um, the the market makers set the price. Now, Graham asked another couple of questions. I'll roll together because the answers kind of go back to the first one. Um, he says, uh, I also assume there doesn't need to be a seller and I could sell all of my shares even if no one else is buying. Or is there any limit to the number of shares that can be bought or sold at any time? Does the ETF buy the underlying shares before placing them on market? Does ETF sell the underlying shares after I've sold them on the market? assuming there are no offsetting buyers. I've assumed the price are set based on the live valuation of the index. Is this correct? When I look at the GIA ETF, there are only over four or five buyers and four or five sellers with price increments of about one cent in blocks of 10,000 or 15,000. These prices are continually moved throughout the day. So look, basically, as Rams already said, this is uh, there, there are, they have what they call a tracking error that ETFs report. Mm. And they try desperately to the best of their ability to stay as close to the index they're tracking as possible, knowing that things move from time to time, different shares have different liquidities, all that sort of stuff. It's also, by the way, why indexes themselves, or indices, I should say, themselves, um, uh, only allow some companies in with, with sufficient liquid, liquidity so that these people can, including us, buy and sell them in reasonable quantities yeah. to make it worthwhile. Um, mate, it will depend on the ETF. Um, generally speaking, the the weightings actually don't change all that much. And so they simply buy and sell proportional amounts of everything on the index when the trade goes through. I don't claim to know exactly how each individual ETF manager manages that. Some will buy simultaneously. Some might buy in tranches before, during or after. Um, I would say they are reasonable theoretical questions, mate. They're just not going to be impactful investment questions or impact your outcomes. The ETF market maker's job to Ram's point is to ensure that the price of the ETF, the, the, the security price, it's not quite a share, we'll call it the share price for fun. The share price of the ETF trades at as close to, as possible to the, the underlying value of the index itself, the component parts, right? That, that's, that's exactly what their job is. Um, if you're a big Insto shareholder, you might care a tiny bit more than we do about who does that best, who has the lowest tracking error, all that kind of stuff. It's not going to be impactful made over time. So really interesting theoretical questions, likely not to have a, um, any impact on your investing at all. Uh, eventually, they will get smarter and better at this as technology and, and trading systems improve. So you can assume tracking error will, will get lower over time, but it's not going to be impactful. And you're not going to know in advance um, the impact of it in terms of which provider is better than the other. It's also just a million times cheaper to use an ETF provider doing their very best than try and do it some version of it yourself. So man, I don't know the answer. Um, it's not going to be meaningful at any point in time and even less so over longer periods of time because they're going to wash out uh, over time, the ups and downs. Um, Rami, finish just with one question. Can I just add, just I, add, I'll add on that? I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, while there is a market maker, the mm -hmm. units are nevertheless traded in the public markets, right? So you can put yes, a oh, bid sorry, in yes, above yes. theirs, you yep, can put an yep. offer in below. Yes. And I suspect too, not for, you know, nefarious purposes, but they try and they try and make money on the spread. They buy it off you at a lower price than what they will sell it to you. Right, so um, with, with ETFs, generally, 
the the fund is trying to make money is by managing the cash, not by not by trying to take advantage of the spread. Yep. They will have a price that they will buy or sell at, which is why you'll find that uh, whatever they believe the the value of the index is is the price they are supposed to be buying and selling at. So mm-hmm. if you if you were buying and I was selling at the same time, our shares might go to each other, or yep. the market maker might take them both off the market. Or sorry, take mine off, put yours on, or vice versa, as yep. as needed. But it should be done at the theoretical value of the ETF based on the price of the index itself. Yes, I just, I just, I mean, it feels like there has to almost be some implicit spread. I'm again, I'm, I've yeah. generally got the lowest offer in the market. I've got the highest bid, but there's a gap right, between right, right. the two. And so, yeah. any day when average volumes are going through, I'm, I'm just selling at a, at a higher price than what I'm buying them back for. You know, and right, right. it's, I'm sure it's, you know, absolute rounding error in terms of the the business model and the rest of it. Yeah. And my point being is that if that was ever to get silly, then the arbitrage opportunity becomes uh, more available and exploitable, which, yeah. which you know, actually yeah. corrects the issue in, in and of itself. I mean, I'm looking up the Vanguard, uh, which I'm type of global, uh, this is, we call this new market hours on Thursday, um, the Vanguard MSCI International Index Shares ETF, which is basically the worldless Australia. Uh, the last trade was $103.36. There are buyers at exactly that price. There are sellers at $103.40. There's four cents in it over a over a yeah, dollar share yeah. price. You know, yeah, it's, right. It, it just it's it, nothing. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not going to matter enough. So yeah, for what for yeah. what it's worth. Yeah. Um, which is but like really good question, Grandma. I appreciate that. Mate, his last one just talks to one that people ask regularly. So I thought I would would just cover this one too. He says, uh, if that is the case, we talked about that. Why does an ETF such as GGUS? I don't even know what that is. Based on the U.S. stock market, which is closed during our trading hours, move during the day. Is it just FX affecting the price? Question mark. Uh, and Graham, there's, there's two things that happen. One is foreign exchange, absolutely, because the ETF, or the index itself is uh, measured in US dollars. The other one is that most fund managers who have uh, ETF products, well, sorry, start again. Yeah, fund managers who have index products based on an overseas market, often those overseas markets also have futures trading. And so the reality is even though the market itself is closed, if the US S&P futures, for example, uh, fall in after hours trade or before hours trade, the, the futures market itself moves, then the actual value of the index itself will trade along with that. So the ETF, it, and by the way, it's also a way that um, some uh, other buyers, if you, if you want to trade the S&P 500, for example, you'd like, you want to trade the futures, it's another instrument that people do tend to use for that purpose. If they're smaller investors, if you're big, you trade the futures themselves. Um, but you could, for example, uh, try and play silly buggers with that. So it, it moves for FX reasons, but also because of the futures markets for some of those indices. Yeah, look, I don't know, and you said you, you weren't sure either, but I, I would be very highly suspicious that it's like one-for-one one instant adjustment in the underlying for every trade on on the unit itself. I would, You're talking about such big volumes of money spread across so many hundreds of different stocks. Right, I exactly. suspect that it's yep. probably a once-a-week rebalance. Of, you know, if, oh, it turns out that we had more redemptions than more money, you know, more people were selling units than buying units, and we do a bit of an adjustment. And, and, and because of the way the maths works, the tracking mm. error just tends to be really small. Um, so it's it's not like if the market happens to be closed, and even if there isn't the futures option there, I'm, I'm sure they don't care. I right? will just do it mm-hmm. the next day. And the the the, the um, beta, I guess the mathematicians would call it, was going to be really mm-hmm. sort of small between the two. So yeah, interesting question, Graham. But yeah, you know you don't, don't have to don't have to worry about it. Mate, one from Bernard, a follow-up to a question he asked a couple of weeks ago or so. Discord Andrew, he says, thank you for answering my question on the pod. As always, I appreciate that you treat, quote, retail investors, end quote, <laughs> like me, with respect and answer questions in thoughtful and useful ways. I found it especially useful to hear both of, your, both of you share your thought processes about my rebalancing questions. 
indicating it's not always an easy or straightforward process. It was good to hear Andrew's reflection that he didn't reckon on the market being willing to pay very high PEs for years. And also to hear Scott's thoughts that I'd probably already answered my own question in the question, i.e. I already had the yips, that I'd give myself a hard time if I didn't trim and the stock price tumbled and I was still hurting from not watching valuations back in 2021 and seeing a 50% fall in the value of my portfolio. Thanks again for not just patting me on the back. Oh, sorry, thank you again for not just patting me on the head and saying, don't worry about these things, just give us your money and let the big boys take care of it for you. <laughs> you fellas really do give finance people a good name. Well, hopefully not too many people, some of them don't deserve it. You give us average Joe's access to your experience, knowledge and dodgy humour, thank you. And don't patronise, <laughs> says Bernard. And you do this week in, week out, year after year for free. Wow. You may or may not know it, but you really do help me and my family stay on financial track and to build towards real financial stability. Fool man, straw on. That's from Bernard. So thank you, Bernard. Very, very, very kind, mate. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, mate, um, this one is up your alley. I was waiting for the question. No, it was, it was just a <laughs> You just, just a wanted comment, to just a comment. bask in some nice feedback. Okay, we, fair enough. We're, we're, giving people, we're giving people feedback. Okay. Uh, this one, you'll like the one from Howard, mate. Uh, hi, Scott and Ram. I've read about a new financial product related to property, and I am unsure how to assess it. The financial product is offered by the company called Our Leg Up. Essentially, it is using the leftover equity in your property as a pooled security fund to finance lenders' mortgage insurance for banks. As an example, a property valued at a million dollars or a loan of $800,000 could potentially access the remaining 200 grand for this purpose. The net return to investors is 3.5% per annum with a lock-in period of approximately four to five years or until the lenders paying the LMI meet their mortgage repayments to cover the LMI portion of the loan generally 10 to 15% of the amount. Have you heard of this type of financial product before? And what are your thoughts on it? Never heard of it before, no. And I, I was struggling to keep up there a little bit, actually. Um, it sounds, well, knee-jerk reaction without, you know, shooting, shooting from the hip here. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> um, so I like the I like the it all sounds very nice. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read you out uh, just something for the website. By the way, you have nothing to do with these guys. I, I don't have a view on them. It, just to give you an answer, early answer to, my, to the question, Howard. Um, they say uh, so. Our story. They say one by helping more people with a low home deposits five percent buy a home sooner, and by helping existing homeowners get an investment return on the part of their home they own. The opportunity they say is to allow Australians to use the wealth tied up in their property as funds for investment. Uh, they up. say the impact is tied to up. The, I love that. Reducing, yeah. Reduce the growing wealth inequality in Australia by giving Aussies ownership of their most important asset, their home. So, so can one, I? Mate, can you draw? Can you sorry? Because I'm. I know I'm not. I'm not the uh, sharpest <laughs> tool in, in the shed here. So I'm taking. I've got a million dollar house with a half million dollar mortgage. I take my half million dollar equity. I give it mm -hmm. to these guys. Who lend it to people on very, very, very highly leveraged properties with less than five percent to fund their mortgage insurance, mm -hmm. and I make the return. My three and I get three and a half percent for that. Uh, what well, I'm getting five percent in a term deposit now. Anyway, so I'm getting three and a half percent on that. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that you've got to remember, not just any investment, particularly the more um, structured financial products, is well, where's the risk in that? It's seen. Mm-hmm. I got, I'm, not, I'm coming in cold here, right? So forgive yeah. any stupid, naive comments, but it seems to me that there's certainly risk in that. In that the uh, the the counterparty to to the eventual loan here might not be able to pay it back, and as an investor, you're going to lose money on that. So um, I would I would I would just. I'm not saying that the downside is catastrophic and it's not worth the risk of work because I clearly don't know know the product well. But I would obviously the website's going to talk about all these advantages. As we've said in a recent pod, look at what the downside is. What are the actual risks? And I'm not going to risk any amount of capital for a three and a half percent return if 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 the loss. I mean. I, I, frankly, I would I would almost want no chance of loss and go with just cash. If I'm happy with three and a half percent, I'll take I'll just take the inflation only risk, and and be about as safe as I can get. Am I am I am I am I putting that all together wrong? Can you explain it to me like I'm a I'm a twelve year old? No, um, because I think you've actually you've absolutely covered it. Um, they, I, I don't. What what? So first thing I would say, and I I want to be very careful here that I'm not I, I don't want to cast aspersion on this product based on me not understanding it well enough. So yeah, please, I, please I, let's I be clear wanna... on that before the company right. reaches out. We're just right. Yeah. Yeah. So we are simply saying that based on an inability to uh, to see more clearly where the risks and rewards are, that would be something that would make me as nervous as it makes Ram. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not clear to me where the excess returns are for the investor, uh, and it's not clear to me where the risk is for. Um, uh, what risk I'm taking to get that potential return? Now, yep. I it, 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 this scene. I'll tell you what's what's frustrating about this product is on their website you can get absolutely no significant amounts of detail uh, that tell you what's likely to be a problem or, or, or work solve some of the questions that we're looking. L- legally, to it should be in result. a PDS if you can find that on the website. Right. Yep. Well, you have to click the "I'm interested" button and then leave your details and then go from there. Right. So you kind of got to get you kind of got to get neck deep before you can work out what's going on here. So, yeah. Um, so here, I'll, I'll just share with you this this one thing. Uh, the in the FAQs, I've clicked about fourteen different ways through the website. Quote: What's the worst that can happen, and precisely how does this situation unfold? Worst case scenario, where all our risk mitigating mechanisms have been exhausted, we would need to ask investors to contribute cash. So they say no cash down. They're going to effectively kind of somehow cross-collateralize this, I assume. Yep. Uh, back to the quote. So quote, one, scenario, house forecloses with $50,000 worth of negative equity. In other words, the bank sells the house off. Uh, the bank's not getting paid back. There's 50 grand left over. Quote, two, depleted funds and all other techniques to cover losses, which isn't clear what that is, but that's what they say. And then three, ask investor base associated with the property for a contra- approach, sorry, for pro rata contribution, depending on proportion of equity pledged. In other words, what they're saying is the investors who are providing this product, investing in this product, could be up for the cash shortfall if the borrower defaults and the bank isn't covered. Pass. Now, well, yes, that's a, that's a lot of downside risk for something that offers you 35 to 4% per annum. I would not invest in this one in a million years and possibly longer. Um, there is, you, you love the word asymmetry, Ram. Three and a half, four percent upside when you get roughly that in the bank anyway, and much more in other assets when you're taking the risk. I mean, look, risk of loss if you buy shares. Now, so we shouldn't. Yeah, we shouldn't the difference. Entirely. The, 
Well, the, the, the argument would be, but I need cash to get that interest return. In this, you don't need cash. We're just using right, equity, right. mate. We're yeah, using equity. Seems easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're employing leverage. You're employing leverage, but very, you know, literally, uh, you are employing. Whether it doesn't sound like it or feel like, you're employing leverage to get a low single digit re- return. It is not something I would do. Um, let's go to a question from Brian. Brian says, "Hi, Scott and Ram. Question for the podcast. I started investing three years ago." and have built up an ASX portfolio worth $50,000, nice work, which I make monthly contributions to, which is owned in my own name. I also decided to use equity, speaking of that, to, in my home to get a portfolio loan of $100,000 in which I bought IVV, I think it's the S&P 500 ETF, uh, NASDAQ 100 ETF, and managed funds with, in both my wife's name and my own name. I'm gonna stop here for a second, Brian. This is not directed at you at all. I have shared this before. I hate when people use ticker codes to describe companies or ETFs. IVV is not a thing. IVV is a three-letter code that means absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I, I've, I've said this before, partly tongue-in-cheek, partly entirely seriously. I make the investment team at The Motley Fool use company names every single time they discuss a product. I remember. <laughs> right? remember. Hasn't yeah. changed, has not yeah. changed. <laughs> and I do it for very specific reasons, right? Yeah. I'm not saying this is you, Brian. If you think about Woolies' W-O-W or uh, Prometicus's PME or Catapult, one of Andrew's favorites is C-A-T or Kogan, one of mine is K-G-N. What, what's KGN? KGN is a representation of a share price, right? Now, indirectly, it's also representative of the company to some degree. The, the, the more you divorce the business from the investment, the greater the chance you stop thinking like a business owner and start thinking like someone who is just buying tickers and things on screens. Now, I know that's not everybody. I know people say, I'm smart enough to know the difference. I get it. We also know psychological biases are deeply, deeply, deeply seated, and we very rarely can control them. One of the things we talk about with uh, psychological biases and just behavioral finance in general is what they call pre-commitment devices for me and for the team <laughs> unfortunately for them uh it is starting with the idea of a pre-commitment bias being use the name use, use the name of the business and you'll start thinking about the business not just the ticker so there you go um, that's what that's why question, i mean we yeah. spoke about hih before right like there, know, are some, yeah. there are some there are some companies where the ticker CBA. and the name yeah, are, the, are exactly. the same yeah. you know <laughs> that, that makes it easy yeah. exactly exactly um uh my question is whose name should I hold the shares in? By the tax laws, I'm a middle income earner and my wife is a high income earner and this most likely won't change. No personal advice, of course, but in theory, should the lowest income earner hold the shares or the highest or both? Is there any advantage with franking credits for either of us to hold the shares? I still have 17 years before I want to contemplate selling and by that time, I hope to have a sizable portfolio by dollar cost averaging and any additional funds to be put into the ASX. He says, our plan is to sell once retirement has commenced in order to save paying tax. Uh, so and just be clear with that, he's not saying he's going to sell to save tax. He's saying he's not going to sell until retirement. And at that point, with lower income, it'll cost him less in tax. Unless life throws a curveball at us, we won't need to ever touch the portfolio. Interesting to hear your thoughts, even if you think I'm overanalyzing it, says Brian. <laughs> Full on from Brian. I reckon he says that, Ram, because you're more likely to say, it doesn't matter. It's like you get it roughly right. Oh, no, in this case, I'm, I'm, I think it's... Oh. I think it's no, it's go, go, put it in your own name. Put it in the yeah. It, like the franking credit's going to be a benefit to to both of you. It's yeah. tax already paid, right? So you'll both benefit from it. Um, and, and because franking credits are refundable, even if the credits exceed your tax, it's yeah. still it's still equally beneficial to you both. The dollar value of that that either reduces your tax or gives you a refund will be the same for both, right? Yeah. So that's an easy one. And 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 on the next front, whether there's a capital gains discount or not, you'll be paying your margin. Well, you, you still it's based on your marginal rate of tax, right? So whoever's on the lowest marginal rate of tax, yep. uh, that's the name it should be in. Now there are 
relationship questions around trust and structures and yes. you know th- those kinds of things but you know assuming assuming i mean even even if when relationships break down the lawyers will get involved and sort of hopefully carve things up relatively equitably but mm. it's a consideration right so if uh if if uh, you and and your other half are you know not likely to make it. Then maybe you want to just sort of do it fifty fifty. Uh, no, no one expects that, of course. But other than that, no, it's black and white. I would like. I'm not a I'm not a tax advisor, but that's that's my instinct. Yeah, uh, I am I am reliably informed that in case of uh, breakup, uh, transfer of assets is actually capital gains tax free if it's done as a divorce settlement for for the record. So uh, oh, it, may, it may not it may not matter as much when they're sold. Obviously, you have to then pay capital gains tax, but the transfer of assets, I believe, and again, we're not tax advisors. Um, but yeah, you know, if, if the shares were in my name and my wife uh. was to come to a census and and leave, uh, she <laughs> would uh, the, the shares would go to her without a capital gains tax event. They're, they're taxable based on the cost base, but the event of the divorce itself, as long as the divorce, I think, and again, I'm not a lawyer or a tax accountant, I believe it needs to be a, a, a formal divorce rather than just a hey, we'll split up here's all my shares. It would yep. need to be a genuine, like you know, I think it needs to be subject to court order. I think okay. again, that's anyway, that's a whole different topic. It seems it seems appropriate. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they, they are joint assets, and it shouldn't it shouldn't trigger anything. Yeah. Um, I I'm going to agree with with Ram Brian with just a slight extra bit of nuance. And the the bottom line, you made the point. You know, unless life throws us a curveball, you you can't ever set a foolproof strategy up for life because you don't know what life will throw at you, which you obviously have acknowledged. In a perfect world, if you're always likely to earn less than your partner, then it would make sense to have the investments in your name. There are some circumstances where uh, things might be different. And I'm not saying you should necessarily even plan for these, just to be aware of them. If, for example, uh, your partner was going to retire before you, uh, and at that point you were going to sell, there may be, you know, if your partner was five years older, for example, we're going to stop working earlier. It might make sense during those retirement years when there's no other income to then sell those shares. And in that context, Mm. again, if there's a large Mm. amount of money and hopefully a large capital gain, it may make sense to recognize the capital gain in that person's name. If you were either or both likely to take some time off work and do a 12 months around Australia at 58 and go back to work or something, uh, then again, you could use that year to sell those shares. And if they're in both names, you can use take advantage of both tax-free thresholds and both marginal tax rates, again, to sell in that context. So mm. there, are, there are circumstances where... Um, it, you know, again, I, we can't know what we're going to do in life, right? So Andrew's point is the, uh, was it Occam's razor? Just the simplest option is probably best, which is generally mm-hmm. invest it in the lowest, lowest name. But if for whatever reason, you yeah. had some thoughts about what you might do differently uh, at some point in time in the future, um, you might do it that way. I would probably, I got to say, Ram, notwithstanding your, your, your comments, I would, almost, I would almost consider, and again, this is not advice for you, Brian, I would almost consider putting roughly equal in both names if you're not planning to sell them until retirement. Because at the point of retirement, you effectively both go to zero. So you both have the tax-free thresholds and both have the same tax rates. So it's a very different scenario if you're going to sell sooner. Now, quick um, asterisk, this, this is complex. If you're going to get massive uh, you know, dividends, yes, you get the franking credits, but what's left over is still taxable at your marginal rate. And so there may still be some benefit depending on how the numbers net out in terms of reducing other tax. But the reality is it's probably not going to be an issue. You're going to both benefit from franking credits the same way. And if you're not going to sell a single share till you're both retired, and assuming superannuation is not counted towards retirement income, then at 68, assuming that's the that's retirement, 67 is retirement age for you. At 68, you both got a zero income and the same tax-free threshold. Um, if your wife was selling, so if you were selling $100,000 worth of shares on that year, you're going to pay the full tax rate. If you're selling 50 grand each, the tax rate would be much lower. 
uh, if you split them between the two of you. So if you had a high degree of likelihood, again, I can't say you, you should do, Brian, be very clear, talk to a tax accountant, but right, rule number one, always. But there might be some benefit in having it both names so you can sell a smaller amount each and pay lower tax overall if you're both going to wait until retirement to start selling. Was it Brian or Graham who had the 50000 after three years? Brian. Brian. Well done, Brian. Um, I, I yeah, just want to make right. I com- completely out, out, uh, outside of the question, but you know, fifty grand's not an insignificant amount of money. Yeah. And, you know- Even the, better when you compound it. Well, here's my point, right? So that's, I think it's roughly 300 bucks a week sort of saved. Now, not everyone's going to be in a position to do that, um, yeah. but it's just amazing how fast- that can grow. So that's assuming yeah, that's, yeah. that's just saving and getting 0% interest, right? So right, if I can right, do 320 right. bucks, whatever it is a week, I'm going to have 50 grand after uh, five years, 156 mm-hmm. times what, um, uh, 300. I think it's yep. something like yep. that, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, and then at that point, now you've got something, you just assume sort of average market growth rates or something. You've actually got something that, it, that itself is contributing five grand a year further to that, to that compounding machine as well. So anyway, I was chatting to a mate the other day who's always sort of struggling to, you know, oh, I've never got any money to invest. And I was mm-hmm. like, dude, if, think about it as a case of beer a week. You know, you, yeah, right. you pay 80 bucks for like a carton of beer, right? <laughs> you know? So if you can oh, do, I'm not saying yeah. don't enjoy life, right? But I'm just sort yeah, of yeah. saying there are, I think all of us can, there are, mm-hmm. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be preachy and say don't drink beer. Whatever it is in life that you can easily rationally afford and enjoy doing, there's there's a few cup bites you can make, and all of a sudden that's like it's more than four grand a year, right? Mm-hmm. And you do that over like a 15 year period, you, you know, and you throw in some compounding, you got a hundred grand to your name that itself is mm-hmm. probably generating close to 10 grand a year on average for a very very small sacrifice. It's just the the real point of all the stuff and the nuance and the weeds that we get into here. It's just like. <laughs> I know I keep coming back to it. Spend less than what you earn. Yeah. Enjoy life by all means, but you know, put it away and you'll just wake up one day and go, wow. <laughs> and 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 it's in, and you're gonna find that each year that goes by, like the wow factor increases because it's really nice to earn a 10% return on 50 grand. I'll tell you what's nicer, earning 10% return on 500 grand. Like that's right. that's really cool too. So totally. Yeah. And and I, wanted, call, I wanted to call it out. Back to that point. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a yeah, mate, well it's a done, really good, Brian. Yeah. Can, I, can I add to that too? Speaking of being preachy and speaking about, I think reflecting back to Friday's podcast, um, I, I'm, I'm going to just preach for half a minute, um, which is just you mentioned the case of beer and the millennials are tagged with their smashed abos and that kind of stuff, and they, you know, the, the abos aren't going to save you much. The beer will save you more. Um, by the way, if you drink a case of beer a week, maybe maybe have a think about how much you drink. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's not health advice or financial advice. Um, yeah. I guess I wanted to, you know, you can save some money by cutting back on smashed abos or coffee. You can save money by cutting back on beer. You can save money by cutting out a streaming service that's costing you 15 bucks, 20 bucks a month, right? That, that, and they're real savings. And for plenty of people, that is the difference between credit card debt and, and you know, not having that debt. So they're, they're mm. not, I don't, want, I don't want to for a second um, suggest you shouldn't do any of those things. Again, if you drink more of the case of beer, maybe cut back for your health as well as your wealth. Uh, mm. But uh the uh, no judgment by the way but um well, i guess what i wanted to make a point about the bigger things you know if you if you think about the car you drive particularly if you have a lease if you think about the house you own uh particularly if it's bigger or fancier than you need it to be again as ram said you make your own life choices you make your own decisions do whatever the hell you want but the savings that come from a, a smashed avo or a, or a coffee or a Again, maybe a six-pack of beer, um, are, are very, very different and, and much uh, tiny relative to 
the ability to constrain your own lifestyle expectations and lifestyle inflation, right? You can drive your $80,000 Audi or you can drive a $35,000 used Audi or a Commodore or whatever else the cool kids drive these days. I drive a Hilux. Um, so please yourself. I'm not saying we should drive a Hilux. So they're very good cars. Um, I, I guess I'm just making the point that, you know, the, the money you can save. I mean, look, if you buy, a, I, I bought a used, again, I'm not telling you everyone should do this, used $35,000 Hilux, right? I could have bought a brand new $80,000 Audi. You know, it, it, and, if, and if that's you buying the Audi or whatever, the, the 50 grand you save there, sorry about saving $50,000 by adding, saving money every week, you literally have that in your back pocket just by not buying the car in the first place. If you finance it, it's even more than that because you've got to pay the interest over the time of the, the length of time during the, the, the lease or the, the finance period. And again, I'm not saying don't drive nice cars. I'm not saying don't drive nice houses. I'm just saying that those are the things that can really meaningfully change your financial future. And you can work like buggery to try and find $100 saving on your insurance or $50 on you know streaming over a year or whatever else you want to do. And again, do those things for sure. But I, I just encourage people to also look at the big things, not just the little things, because that's where there's... That, 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 is, that is honestly the difference between potentially a very, very large amount of money in retirement and a nice car for your working life and then significantly less in retirement. And if you want to choose the car, choose the car, knock yourself out. Uh, but I, I just want to make the point, mate, that, that we don't often talk enough about making better big decisions. We talk a lot about, you know, saving a cup of coffee or doing something else. I think both together are, are worth thinking about. Actually, I'm glad you raised that. I, nothing drives me more crazy than than people saying, oh, if you just cut back on the avo and toast. I know that's become a meme, yep. but, you know, the general sentiment has not gone away. You see it crop up all yes, the time. Exactly. Then you'd be able to have a house. I actually saw this wonderful tweet from uh, Tarek Brooker the other day, right. avid commentator on, on, mm. on Twitter. And he was just, just playing around with some average numbers and said, <laughs> okay. you know, uh, how long would it take for a medium household to save 20% deposit on a medium home? You know, it's a reasonable question. Base 3% wage growth, 5% house price inflation. So there's always assumptions in here. Um, but saving 15% of their household income. So it's, and it's an interesting analysis, but in the sense that it took 13 years yeah. to get ahead, right? Guess what it was for a house? You might have saw the tweet. I didn't actually know, so tell me. Infinity. <laughs> in, in, in other words, you never yeah, get to 20%. Now, you, you yeah. would have, the mathematically minded among you would have said, well, because you just assumed 5% house price yeah. growth and only 3% wage growth. But however, that is that is the circumstances a lot of people find themselves in, where the the houses are growing much faster than 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 wages. So even if you're the average person looking for the average home, even if you're saving 15 15% saving on household rate is very high, right? Like it's much higher than the average. So you're doing everything that you kind of can. You still can't get away. You still can't get ahead in that in that set of you know you hypothetical circumstances. Yep. Yep. So it, so it is. You're on the marathon. The further in front your competitors getting. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, yeah. all I'm saying is, is where appropriate, cut back. Don't live in a tent eating two-minute noodles and stale bread. You know, enjoy life. But just, I just, I just want to make the point that it can really sort of add up over time. But yeah, don't, 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 don't be a, don't be a dumb boomer and just blame the kids on not, you know, being, being, being. Correct. It's their fault for not having a house. It really sticks in my craw. Correct. Correct. I like that. Hey, mate. One from Andy. Hi, gentlemen. That's very kind of you, Annie, to assume we're gentlemen. Second time writing in, I have a few tangent-inducing questions for you <laughs> both to indulge in. Well, that's it. Clear my schedule. This is going to be that's a long it. podcast. It's over. Uh, <laughs> it's your fault, Andy. All right, well, well, I was going to say we'll do our best not to, but I can't even promise that. Let's go. Question one. Do you both believe the inflation story can have a long-term effect on share prices like it does on tangible assets? Or... Are most investors more focused on cash flows and earnings? 
Say my buying power is cut by inflation. Does the market reflect this to say buyers actually require more dollars to buy a given share? Yeah, yep, yep. I don't think so implicitly. I don't think it's something we think about as much as probably we should, but it, it should. I mean, whether it's pesos or Aussie dollars or whatever, it's just like whatever. <laughs> what are these companies doing? That's what they're delivering. That's what they're yeah. aiming to deliver, more of this thing that we sort of measure the, the value in. And, um, you know, so it, it is It is. It is. Imp- you can't divorce the two. There's no point if my company makes 20%, it does 20% profit growth each and every year, but inflation's at 30%. Like, I'm mm. going to factor it in, right? Um, uh, I, that being said, I don't, think, I don't think enough of us do um, mm. as long-term investors. And it, it's why when you look at real rates of long-term return, they tend to be much lower than what we, we tend to quote because you've, you've got to sure. take off. Yep. Take off. I mean, what matters here? It's just a number. Like, I mean, yeah. double the amount of dollars or half the amount. It's just it's, we're using a ruler to measure something here. And um, uh, if the ruler is going to keep changing in length, you know, it's just, it's going to it's going to fold back into the calculation at, at some point, even though it might be easy to miss over short periods. And, and frankly, look, you know, in most most developed markets most of the time it probably hopefully won't be much of an issue that it's it's mm. going to swing the dial and the other thing to remember with inflation is it's it's across the board so you know it's not going to whether it's emu farms or or shares or property it, it's a consistent consideration across everything yes um i think that's largely true i will i will share a couple of different thoughts maybe even contradictory thoughts in some senses ram so so tell me your thoughts when i'm finished no hit me um so breaking it back a little bit i think the first thing well (laughs) i'll do i'll do a scott morrison i think i said with julia gillard once got in trouble for it whoever one of them one of them said it uh i disagree with the premise of your question andrew uh andy sorry uh not because i disagree with ram's commentary but i think i will say if you're asking that question you're implicitly maybe tempted to think about (laughs) what do I do as a result and if that's the case then the other thing I would just say to you is when you say does inflation have a long-term effect on share prices I mean it it could but then inflation has to be high for long periods of time to even have that question being a valid question to ask or or at least the answer to be materially useful to you Um, so I'm kind of dancing all over this I guess what I'm saying is um, like everything uh, if you if you're only thinking about high inflation you're missing the chance If, if you'd ask in 1991 1980 or 1977 when the oil shop price shock was going through the economy um you know what happens if what what you know what, what's going to happen with share price with long-term high inflation and we could have had the conversation that the next 40 years were remarkably low consistent inflation and so the answer to the question may have been technically or theoretically right or useful um but it may not have necessarily been very um, worthwhile because we didn't have that scenario unfold so that, that'd be the first thing i'd say second thing is I, I have an interesting thought that's different to yours, Ram. So I, I love your thoughts. You've probably thought more about this than I have. But to some degree, share prices are more likely to be impacted by interest rates, which I guess themselves are a function of inflation, an indirect function of inflation. So to some degree, that you know, the so-called discount rate, when I can get 5% in cash in the bank in a term deposit, do I want to earn 6.5% in shares? Probably not. Now, if I get 10% in shares, I'd probably do it. But there is some element of that. And we find that higher interest rates tend to push down prices. And higher interest rates tend to be correlated with inflation. So indirectly, that's that's probably true. Last thought is just one of share prices tend to be a function of earnings. The multiple matters. And the multiple is probably what gets 
meaningfully impacted by rates that I just mentioned. But inflation will play its way out right through a company's profit and loss statement and arguably eventually its balance sheet. And I say that because we have to think not just about... if you, So if you had an annuity, if you're going to get a dollar a year forever, um, would inflation impact the price of that annuity? Yeah, absolutely. Because if I got a 1% return, when inflation's at zero, um, that's worth something to me. When inflation's at 3%, I couldn't sell that thing quick enough. And somewhere in between is the reality. So I guess, but, but in, in, in the case of shares, where this is unlike, say, a term deposit or a bond is you would hope companies just generally make more money over time. If they have pricing power, they might even be able to entirely offset inflation over time. And so when we say impact on stocks, I'd say yes, but different companies in different ways because inflation will only impact just the price we pay for the asset or for the earnings stream, but inflation will impact that earnings stream itself. And so you've kind of got to think through both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Um, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, that's what I love it's about this. I love about the mailbag because, I mean, they, they, I think you pick it, uh, a lot of these questions and you just find that you go deeper into it. There's a lot to be, as we demonstrate, yeah. there's a lot to be said about so yeah. many. And, and generally it sort of asks more, it opens up more questions. Yeah. Um, here's the other thing, you know, if you want to protect yourself from inflation, what do you want? You want you scarce, hard yeah. quality assets. Yeah. They always yeah. go up in value. And so shares is a very broad term. There's a mining speculator um, out there and there's also, right. yes, exactly. you know, companies that are extremely uh, deeply moted cash generative machines. And you'll find that they tend to be pretty good stores. There's only so, there's not, Woolies shares are scarce. There's only so many of them, right? And and if you what you will, I think, could say, whatever your view on inflation, is that they will probably be pretty inflation resistant in the sense that they're non-discretionary. Mm. I mean, inflation means they're putting their prices up, right? So they're kind of they're kind of sort of hedged to a natural degree around that. Mm. And just the expectation from the market that inflation is going to be a thing. We touched on this the other day when using Woolies as an example, but I, I think it, I think that sort of folds into it. So, so, oh, what am I trying to say here? What I'm, what I'm trying to say is, if, if you, I think consider inflation, absolutely, but it's consistent error across across the whole thing. But you want the kind of companies that can weather an inflation, an inflationary environment. And those that can, by definition, will themselves find their asset prices pretty inflation protected. I mean, again, come back to this idea that money is a ruler. So whatever sort of – and, and you measure that ruler against something that is harder and more finite, you know, one is going to be move around much more relative uh, to the other. So it, it's, it's – I would always bet on not the exact number of what earnings per share might be or dividends per share in real or gross or nominal terms or whatever it happens to be. But if, if you've genuine – this, this is why investing at its heart is, is really just a, a meditation on value – that little word that just means so what what does value mean how do i think about that how do i put numbers on how do i even measure value it's really 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 hard to kind of do but 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 just to keep it basic if you've got something that is that is a genuinely valuable because you've got a like i could stick with woolies an economic machine here that can pretty reliably adapt to these environments and they'll have better better years than others don't get me wrong they'll made back make bad investment decisions but has that quality of at least 
likely to be very durable, likely to be very long lasting and likely mm. to be fairly inflationary that will, will it in itself attract a premium. And, and, and when, when there are inflationary environments, you'll find that that is the, the, the share price will adjust. Maybe not in real terms, maybe the share price, maybe over the next five years, Woolies goes up 50%. And in, in aggregate terms, inflation is not each year, but over that, over that five year, if we have 10 years, like five years in a row or you know nine or 8.8% or whatever mm, it is, mm, mm. that's exactly what you get. You've actually stayed absolutely still in your purchasing power, yes. but that's still a pretty good outcome because wealth preservation yeah, relatively is- Relatively, that's right. You know, yeah, that's, exactly. That, exactly. that's great. So I don't know, just throw some more thoughts in there to complicate things. Love it. No, really good thoughts, mate. Here's the second question from Andy. He says, does the fact that super funds and fund managers that attempt to track indices, such as the ASX 200 or 300, that continue to buy large parcels of large cap shares regularly, does it actually account for some of the large caps having fairly hefty multiples? Names that come to mind are CBA and Woolworths. You said W-O-W, Andy, because you didn't hear my rant before, but just I'm going to assume you would have changed your question had you heard. I know these are both quality companies, but it seems mostly all investors have had the same thesis that they are both overvalued. Mm. I'll take first swing on this one, mate. Um, okay. uh, I, I'm going to... I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to just for fun of it, speaking of tangents, uh, grab your last point, Andy, about... It seems mostly all investors have the same thesis. These are both overvalued. Uh, the market is, the, the market will tell you exactly at any point in time what the market is thinking. And so when you say most people think this is over, those are overvalued, what you're saying is the people I'm listening to uh, believe they're overvalued. Uh, the people who still hold them don't think they're overvalued. The people who are buying them, because someone's buying them every day, don't think they're overvalued. Now, someone's going to be wrong. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a thing called a valuability bias, right? And it's just a case of, you know, who do I listen to? If I listen to Andrew all day, I'm going to think, Bitcoin's not crypto and the best thing in the world, right? And maybe he's <laughs> even right. If I listen to some other people on Twitter, one particular I'm thinking of, Andrew Brown. G'day, Andrew. You're probably listening to this one, but just for fun. He actually puts anti-crypto on his profile uh, description. Uh, if I listen to him, I'm going to think something very different. Now, I would say, it seems most people think Bitcoin's a hoax. Or it seems most people think Bitcoin's going to be fantastic. Uh, I shouldn't mention Bitcoin because that just gives Andrew. Over <laughs> so what are you doing to me here? Man. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, but but broadly, broadly, my point is, you know, we say most all values have most all investors have the same thesis. Uh, I would actually just respectfully disagree with that, almost by definition, based on what we see in the market. So there's that. Um, in terms of the indices, I'm going to just take you back at half a step. You say just the fact that super funds and fund managers that attempt to track indices by these companies. Um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem because if you're tracking an index, you buy it because the, the price goes up, but you're not causing the price to go up to someone else. You're just, you're just buying it because that, those things are happening, right? So if you're tracking an index, you are buying each company in proportion to its ownership. And there is no, I guess maybe the ASX 200 versus the bottom 20 stocks. Maybe there's more buying pressure on that than the other. Uh, but that's not necessarily the super funds or fund managers per se. I would, I would encourage you to think about that as everybody adding money to the market in their own preferred option. There are emerging markets, oh, sorry, emerging markets. There are emerging companies, ETFs. There are small cap investors who just, Andrew is a small cap investor. It's like, well, if people like Andrew keep adding money, won't that push up the PEs of, of small stocks? Um, and somewhere in between. Over the last 18 months, the, the, the PEs of, of growth or tech stocks have absolutely been destroyed. Um, I think it's tempting to think about it that way, Andy, and I understand your approach. The market will value these things at what the market thinks they're worth. As soon as a super fund buys and it pushes the multiple up, anyone owning CBA who says, finally, I'm out, this is too expensive, I'm selling, this is ridiculous, will push the price back down. There are always two sides to every single trade. Yes, money being added to a market in general 
will have an upward pressure on prices in that market by definition because there are more and more people who are trying to invest over time and like demand market, demand and supply as always you know it, right like any market when you add demand and you don't add more supply now by the way new companies are being listed all the time so there's always those things moving around and it's an imperfect thing i would i would suggest to you that it's probable that australian shares are higher than they would be if there wasn't a superannuation system because uh, I think that compulsory savings probably wouldn't have happened to the same size without it. So there's probably some element over a very long term to suggest that might be pushing prices up more than they otherwise might be. Uh, that being said, we know there is growing wealth inequality, right? Let's not get political about it. It just happens to be true. Uh, there is more of national income going to capital rather than labor. Where's that capital going? Well, some of it's in cash, some of it's in something else, some of it's in shares. So again, is that happening globally? Probably, yeah. Um, but also... There are still businesses out there that are trading on single-digit PEs. And if the market chose to, it could allocate money to those single-digit PE companies that thought they were better value or small caps. The small cap funds should be going bananas right now. If, if people went, CBA is too expensive, I'm going to go and invest in small caps. I'm going to find a great small cap manager to invest in them or I'm going to jump on Strawman or follow the Motley Fool um, and do it myself. So I think there are some, there are some impacts and, and likely... Um, trends that that do have a macro impact on these things over time i think they're really really small i don't think they're meaningful i'm not even sure if they're measurable maybe they are the super thing seems to be large enough that it might be having an impact um but i i I don't know that i would suggest that cba and woolies for example are more expensive than they should be because of that thing going on if anything it might be the whole market and if it was you look at cba and woolworths for example anz's half the price of cba if you're tracking an index, you'd buy both. Um, so I don't think you can. I don't think you can necessarily pin individual company valuations on that kind of market-wide uh, thesis of more money being thrown at these large companies. Ram, am I wrong? No, I don't think so. During the ascendancy of ETFs, I remember lots of active fund managers coming forward crying foul, oh, and it's I unfair. It distorts markets. <laughs> and it's like BS. Like it does. Like index funds go in the whole market, then we won't get any pricing. It's oh, it's all rubbish. Yeah, but I mean, again, it is. They should be cheering for it, right? If it's really distorting market prices, aren't? <laughs> I mean, you're an active stock picker. You want a yep. distorted market, right? Yep. Like perfectly efficient markets are not the friend of, of, of the stock picker, right? So, <laughs> exactly. so it was a stupid argument. I mean, yep. where it's true, you, you, you highlighted it well, so I'll, I'll, I'll say the same thing slightly differently, but it's, it's, it's more about the new money that's coming in. If I've built my billion-dollar ETF and I've got a position in everything and the market goes up, well, the market's gone up anyway. I mean, I've reweighted just by being there, right? If the market yeah. falls in 50%, I mean, it, or, or one company within the index changes, like the very act of that movement automatically reweights me. So it's the new money that's coming in. And you could argue that, and I don't think this is a fair argument, that without ETFs, a lot less people would be investing, new money would be coming into shares. Now, as you say, it's about the question of how it's allocated. So it, it turns out that, you know, some an ETF provider is doing it on your behalf and investing against a certain agenda and, and methodology. That's fine. Maybe that not as much would have been there. But again, if there was these big distortions in there, someone would be selling. It, it would it would sort of average it out. So I think it's. I love these questions because they really do get you thinking. But the the thankfully the answer practical one is an easy one, which is don't sweat it. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. I think that's I think that's pretty right. Um, I'll let you go first on question three from Andy. What are your thoughts on employee share purchase plans? I'm currently employed by one of the larger companies on the ASX and they offer SPPs to employees. 
Being of the younger generation, bastard, I am working a few jobs to try to get ahead in my early years. Well done. So tax on this income from this secondary employment is increased. And because the purchase plan's salary sacrifice, i.e. pre-tax, and don't require brokerage, am I wrong in believing I'm able to get shares in this company for a discount on the current share price of around 20%, as this is my tax rate? P.S. I have no issues paying my taxes. I'm not trying to avoid paying them. We should all do our fair share to help uh, in a thriving nation we call... Uh, sorry, help this thriving nation we call home prosper. I'm just a sucker for a bargain share price when I can get we one. We all are. We all LOL. are. Yeah. Hopefully I haven't led you both down a slippery path towards going tremendously over time for the podcast. Keep up the awesome podcasts. Kindest regards, Andy. Yeah, great question. What do you reckon, mate? SPPs? Um, so I love them. Conceptually, I love them. Um, mm. It's the usual. It depends. It's, it's like um, yeah. uh, uh, executive shares and short-term incentive. So it, it gives you alignment. I think you're going yeah. to be a more engaged employee when you've got an ownership stake. Are you just going to mm -hmm. care more, right? So I, I love that. I love it too, even from a business perspective, because it's, it's a form of remuneration that isn't cash. So as long as it's not hyper-dilutive to other shareholders, it's a, it's a great way to sort of attract and retain and align people. So it's just it's hard not to, to like it from that, that angle. Mm. Um, you just want to make sure it's equitable. You don't want to make sure that there, it's too onerous in terms of what you're able to do. And, and fundamentally, at the base layer of it all, you've got to, even – even if shares seem – and you're right, on, on an after-tax basis, they, they are cheaper. You are getting a discount because you're paying with pre-tax dollars, right, with your salary. So it's, it's, it's unquestionably a discount than what you're getting on market. Mm. But if the thing's going to zero, who cares, right? Like whether you get a 20%. So you need to have a – you need to have – uh, a view that it is a company that I would want to invest in anyway. And if all of that is true, I love it. I think it's, I think it's a great option. Yep. I, I mostly agree. Two thoughts from me are, uh, one is the concentration of your employment you know, uh, remuneration and the shares you own. Um, plenty, of, plenty of Lehman Brothers uh, employees had had you know most of their super their versions of 401ks in Lehman shares um, that was doubly painful for those people so just 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 be mindful of that I don't yeah. think it's a reason not to do it but just just be mindful of what the rest of your portfolio looks like and, and where you're um, doubling down the other is um, both a positive and a negative when you're working for a company it's really 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 easy to see what you love and it's really, really, really easy to see what you don't like about the business you're working for. And that can absolutely change your view. Uh, I have- Yeah, you have a bad business. manager that yeah. you can't stand, right? right? But it happens to be a really great company. Your your day-to-day yep. -day is like, oh, this guy's an idiot. And it's yep. frustrating and rah, rah, rah. But yeah, maybe the business is still good. Good point. Oh, what's it like working for a bad boss at Straw Man, mate? <laughs> oh, he's great. He's brilliant. <laughs> uh, so there's that. But but it's also, it's not just manager, mate. I've, I've worked for businesses where I looked at the decisions being made and thought, these people are idiots. And the business succeeded anyway. So there's also just that element of kind of like, just being humble about how much you think you know and, and not letting your experiences of the manager or the company itself or whatever overwhelm the results of the organization. There's just that there's two, two different parts at the same time. And like anything, um, invest in the, business based on its customers not your own perspective mm. if you love a particular product everyone else hates it 
It's probably going to do very well. If you don't love a product, I'm never going to buy La Vista costume jewelry ram. It's not my thing, funnily enough. Um, if a lot of people love it, well, that tells you something about the business, right? So it, the same is true of the businesses themselves. Make sure when you have a view, either good or bad, gee, I love my boss. He's such a great guy. I can't see how we'll possibly fail, but you're working for Kodak. You know, like there, there are just some realities around thinking about thinking about what that looks like and just, just make sure you keep that in, in, in perspective. Again, not saying you sure or shouldn't do it, just some additional kind of thoughts on, on back of Rams. Much more excellent answer uh, as to different ways of thinking about what's, yeah. uh, what's going on as a, as a Also think about the T's and C's a little bit, um, just to be aware of them. Um, like it might be that you can't sell your shares for five years. By the way, that's exactly how the company should structure it, right? Because the, it's, not, it's not here for you to get a bit of a discount flick on market and make an easy buck, mm-hmm. right? It, it's more about creating that long-term incentive. But it's a consideration for some. If it's like, well, I get to do this, I get to use pre-tax dollars, I really like the company, all of that. Oh, I can't sell for five years. Well, your life. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's right. a it's right. a consideration that means that the 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 money is not going to be available to you uh, for a time. And, I, and again, I say I think it's appropriate for companies to put some uh, escrow periods in there because mm-hmm. it becomes mm-hmm. too much like a casino. But yeah, be aware of it. I should say, for the record, I own some Motley Fool shares. Um, they're not publicly listed. I don't normally disclose them in any other context. But in this context, um, I have bought them. I've, we've, the Fool is very generous with uh, with equity grants to, to employees as well. Um, now, that, that's taxable as well. It has its own issues. Just be mindful of those tax implications, by the way. Um, often when the grants are provided, that, that's taxable. Then even if you don't sell the shares, uh, there's certainly been some cash. Yeah, so here's $10,000 worth of shares. We're going to yeah. tax you on that. But I didn't get any yeah. money and I yeah, can't sell my shares. shares yeah. If I, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It feels like a, yeah. It's like yeah, an, uh, an impost. Yeah. And for, for justifiable reasons, it's 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 quasi-income startups in particular do it instead of cash. And you think, well, hang on, if, you know, if I'm getting a benefit, I should be taxing that benefit, but it's it can be brutal. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Hey, mate, let's finish off with a question from Stephen, or an email from Stephen anyway. Uh, there are at least two lines where he's uh, he's responded in capital letters. So uh, we'll just, just, just buckle in, Thor's buckle Okay. In. Scott and Ram, he says, Firstly, congratulations on your podcast and the breadth of issues covered. It's a nice way of saying we tangent a lot, I think. Uh, also, thank you both for your commitment contributing to providing a tremendously important source of education to your listeners. About me, says Stephen, I'm an old bloke who started first started investing in the share market in 2007, just before the GFC, he says. In the early days before podcasts, the only thing that kept me from panicking or jumping from a balcony was the marketing material emailed to me every few days from The Motley Fool, assuring me things would eventually get better and the dark days would pass. I know you've been critical of some of the marketing, but believe me, it kept me sane, for which I am extremely grateful. In case your listeners are unaware, the fallout from the GFC was quite extreme. Even though I could pick up shares at great companies at huge discounts, the overall decline in prices for the blue chip shares I own was so steep that my portfolio only returned to the black in 2010. I'm going to stop there, actually, mate, because I want to. I want some of our listeners to just think that through. Um, bought shares in 2007. I don't know whether he's still buying at eight, nine, and ten, but it took three years before he was made whole again. And you made the point earlier, Ram, about recessions, not not if, but when. There will be another share market slump like that one. And three years is a bloody long time to stay in a market when you're looking at red on the screen every single day. And it hurts and you feel like you've been stupid and made horrible mistakes and done all those sort of things. And it's really, really easy to give up at any one of those points in time. Had, um, had uh, Stephen done that, 
he would have crystallized a loss and not been made whole. Again, I'm not promising the next one will be like the last one. I just wanted to use Stephen's example to give a face or, a, or, or, or someone other than us to just remind people that things can be like that from time to time. Oh, it's bru- right, it's brutal, okay. by the way. Like that is yeah. that is three years, day in day, seven hundred and fifty trading days, where the market's telling you you're an idiot, and and this share investing is terrible, and you lost money, and you worked hard for that money, and you sacrificed to save it, and the market just took it away. It's 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 a really 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 massive um, head something. I, oh, I it just feels like such a long time to. Um, yeah. In retrospect, you can go three years over an investing career. I can deal with it. Gosh, I mean, six months is brutal. Like, ask me. The last year has been brutal. So, mm-hmm. actually, a very quick interjection here. Um, uh, I saw something the other day. I wrote up, wrote up a straw man. So, between 2019 and 2020, Berkshire Hathaway, Uncle Warren's company, underperformed mm-hmm. the S&P 500 by 37%. Right? So, that's a that's a big fall. A and third. That's, yeah. Yeah. And well, not so. It wasn't a fall. He went mm. forward. Mm. It's just that the yeah. S and P five hundred went like so. So investing in Warren uh, in twenty nineteen meant that you massively underperformed for two years. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the worst relative performances he's, he's ever had. The uh, market's going up and up and up. You've got Berkshire thinking, bloody hell! I knew I shouldn't have bought this boring old, you know, old black yeah. company. I should have been buying the stuff that's going up instead. Interestingly enough, and this will this will sound familiar, he was criticised at the time for hoarding too much cash and not in, and not investing enough in technology stocks. So I was going to like, you know where I'm going oh, with this story, right? Keep so, worth it. well, look, um, but the other thing that was interesting, I found a chart that that showed Berkshire versus the S and P 500 going back like mm. 20 years, and what was interesting was that. So let me just emphasize this we're talking about warren buffett right like probably one of the greatest investors that ever lived or definitely one of the greatest investors probably the greatest investor that ever lived and and not only does he underperform the market but he regularly underperforms the market between 2003 and 2005 same thing it was a brutal brutal period for him same in the late 90s he's been doing it for 50 plus years so it's happened a lot the other thing is what was interesting is there were periods where berkshire a very conservatively run company actually so forgetting about relative performance in 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 actual terms went backwards the share price of berkshire went down in years where the market went up yep and i can see at least three or four instances over that period of time where that's happened so the the point the point now so the the punchline is of course actually since mid 2020 berkshire has done twice as well as the market it's up 63 percent versus 30 for the for the s p 500 so it tends to sort of compound over over time very very favorably but the point that i just want to emphasize here is that if someone like this guy mm. is going to regularly underperform, sometimes significantly, and not just underperform, but go backwards in markets that are going up, who the hell do you think you are <laughs> that it's not going to happen to you? So this is one of <laughs> this is one of the things I think it's it's you've got to yeah. own this really is 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 in you you know deeply 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 within your most inner psyche that, that this is mm. this is not a question of this could happen to me this will happen to you and it will last for years at a time now now that doesn't mean there's not points of reflection and maybe you do need to change some core consider maybe the, the fundamental strategy is just broken this isn't just one of those un, un, un um unappealing periods where you underperform it's actually no you're just doing it wrong and the longer you do it the more you you're, you're going to fall behind but it but it 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 does mean that a it's something that you've got to expect and the the lesson that that um uncle warren tells us is that his superpower has always been just 
being consistent in application. Mm. When times are good, when times are bad. And making sure that, that the process process is is key, right? So I've got a good process and I'm just consistent in it and I and I just keep doing it. And so I just I wanted to stress that point. Um, because yeah, I, th I think I think the 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 listener here is is sort of is probably going to end up in the same the same uh, point in the story that oh, it actually turned out to be really well overall, but but only if you happen to stick at it, <laughs> and only if you were consistent and doing the right thing when it, even when it wasn't easy to do so. That's a very good point. Always beautifully made. Um, Stephen then continues. Anyway, I'm writing in response to your comments early on regarding the growing level of social and financial inequality in Australia. It seems this is a cancer that is affecting many developed countries in the world. Google US inequality, for example, which is getting worse. As the oils once wrote, full marks for, credit in the, for mentioning the, the midnight oil uh, band in this, Stephen. As the oils once wrote, quote, the rich get richer and the poor get the picture, end quote. Great line. <laughs> yeah. I'm reminded of two of your podcasts with Cameron Murray, in which he mentioned his book, Rigged, How Networks of Powerful Mates Rip Off Everyday Australians. Uh, just a quick uh, aside, that was The Good Oil, if you want to have a listen about it. And Cameron and I talked on the Aussie Firebug podcast, actually, about uh, the superannuation system. And, uh, and Matt from Aussie Firebug was, was kind enough to let me post those on our Good Oil podcast feed as well. So check that out. I can tell you it was a hard read and it made me very angry because taxpayers, he says, I'm referring to nurses, factory workers, cleaners, etc., are subsidizing the wealth generation activities of the very rich including some corporates who really should be stepping up to the mark and honouring their obligations to society. In his book, Murray refers to mining companies engaging in activities to limit the amount of royalties they pay, even when they are earning supernormal profits. He also includes property developers, especially in Queensland, who use their political influence to rezone land. In the ACT, there is a betterment tax that is levied on developers to ensure society receives a fair share of the windfall. Both of these examples include the use of lobbyists who, ex who obtain exclusive access to politicians. Then there is a practice of staff rotating from government to industry bodies and back to government, including former ministers immediately being employed by industry bodies on retiring from politics. Uh, he then says, uh, refer to apparently there's an index, he says, yes, eight pages of names and industry bodies. There are many more outrageous examples uh, in the book, which I commend to you. In the final analysis of the first, uh, sorry, in the final analysis, the first step to even out the spread of wealth in Australia is to end these and the other practices that unfairly advantage a small number of Australians at the expense of taxpayers. Stephen then says, "Rant on," <laughs> which I think is his invitation to ask you to comment, Ram. Oh wow! I mean, makes my blood boil too. <laughs> there is there is a lot of stuff like that that is. I don't I think it's unequivocal, right? Like there is. I don't think anyone really would would pretend seriously that there doesn't uh, you don't get a lot of power and influence with more money, like you, <laughs> yeah. you do. Let's this be real yep. for a second, right? And let's also accept the realities of human nature. That again, mm -hmm. it's not an, an evil plan, but we always we're always looking after ourselves as best we can. We and yeah. and yeah, I think there is very very big unfair advantage um, in a lot of the way that things are set up. I mean, I just I, it's so it's, where do you go with that though? I think we all can acknowledge um, all of this kind of stuff. The solutions are, mm. are nuanced, they're complex, they're not easy, they're not even obvious, <laughs> mm. and and it, so it really does. We could spend the next six weeks talking about it. I I, <laughs> I just I, this is why I feel like things like. Um, 
you know, the fourth estate is so important. Like, yeah. like you need to shine a light on things before we can even know that it's there to, to discuss. Just quickly, uh, mate, the fourth estate being the media, for those who don't understand the reference. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, just, 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 just point out, just those who don't, haven't heard the phrase, the fourth estate normally refers to the media. So a, a free and open and fearless media is just so yep. important. You know, yep. those, we need someone who can speak truth, truth to power. And, and it's just, without that, it's sort of like, what else do you do, right? At the end of the day, too, it's, it's sort of like... Um, it's it's kind of all on us like we need to we need to sort of have our say through the um through the democratic process it's mm. it's a very indirect kind of influence but it's the only one we've we've kind of got uh, i think i know i it frustrates me to no end to people to say i'm an ex-voter and whether it's one side or the other i don't care i just think it's the most yeah. apologies if this is you but i just think it's the most unthinking <laughs> dumb thing that you can do <laughs> Right, it's not a football team that you'll love them yeah. through thick and thin. They, they're people who are actually right, right, right. have the power to to influence these very real concerns that, that that you have. And just because they happen to be wearing the color shirt that you like is just, you know. So we we need to be more accountable to ourselves. But the the, the other side of that is is that you know when you're under the thumb and just trying to scratch a living, you probably don't have that much time to to have the level of engagement that you need until until there's riots on the street, right? Which is where, I mean, historically, when you look at the big arc of history, I mean, that's that's where, where inequality leads in that direction, one way mm-hmm. or, or the other, and we're miles away from that, obviously, at that point. But that's that's where it's headed, and I think the U.S. is a really interesting use case, uh, test case there because it's mm-hmm. it's. It's very much going in that in that it has been for a long time, but I feel as though things are coming more to a head over there, and it's a glimpse of the future for ourselves if we don't do it. I think the, the I'm sorry, Matt, I'm going all over the place here, but do it, mate. I think do it. that's what that's well, what we're invited to do, mate. Knock yourself out. Too often it comes back to ideological premises and stuff, and it'll be like, well, so you don't want you know people to take risks and be entrepreneurial and create value, and you know everything should be a socialist utopia. It's like, no, God, no, like it's just dumb straw man arguments that get thrown out there like that. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm one who hates buckets. So I, I try to sort of not put myself too firmly in one, but I think you can, you can recognize the importance of free markets and all the rest of it, but still have, still have, still recognize that while a profit is at a powerful incentive mechanism, once I'm Kerry Stokes, you know, the extra $10 million in profit I can make this year is very little incentive needed or, 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 or driven there. We, we can structure things more appropriately where we get the best out of capitalism, but also make sure that we foster an environment where people can get ahead regardless of their circumstance. I'd like to think mm. some poor kid being raised by a single mom under difficult circumstances in a housing estate somewhere could eventually become, I know it's cliched, but eventually become the prime minister or the CEO of Commonwealth Bank or something like that. Not because mummy and daddy sent them mm. to a private school and they've got this old boys network that they can rely on. And, you know, all of these other, and, and you know, I happen to go to school with this bloke here who's now in this and he used to work for this and now he's in there. And it just, and I use the term him and his very deliberately because let's face it, that's where most of <laughs> this dodginess sort of happens. So, I don't know, man. I'm all over the shop there. It, it frustrates me. I, I wish I had an easy answer. Yeah. I am... Um, I'll, I'll try and not to go off such a long run, not because Andrew was bad, just because we'll try and no, was a, not go on for six weeks, as you said. No, it was great, man. I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't want to cover the ground you've covered necessarily and we've, we're deep into the podcast. But I... So, again, where do you start, right? I, I want to say, firstly, I'm very, very, very lucky and very thankful. Uh, and this is not to give my own company a plug for the sake of it, but I get to spend a lot of time on this podcast and on Twitter and other places talking about public policy issues that aren't ostensibly directly related to my day-to-day job, 
right? If I'm if I'm if I'm employed to pick stocks and I'm talking about population policy or negative gearing or uh, to your point, throughout the fourth estate, mate, you know the, mm. the 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 role of of a free and fair and, and open press. I mean, yeah, are they tangentially related? Yeah, if I try desperately to link them, most people in my position don't get the flexibility or the opportunity to do that. And if they do, they've got to be mindful of who they're annoying and who they might want to raise capital for, or which government's in power and regulating their industry, or excuse me, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so I just want to say, you know, um, <coughs> thank you for the question, thank you for the opportunity to, to to answer it, but also, you know, the Motley feels very, very good to me to let me have this these conversations completely free of any influence or uh, restriction whatsoever. Uh, and sometimes, by the way, the things I say are not things some of our members want to hear because I will say, for example, I think taxes should be higher on resources companies. I own shares in Fortescue. I don't care. I want taxes to be higher. I think policy beats profit, right? It just does. Um, we, we want a country that is a great place to live and work um, and all the things that I think we actually think in our, in our you know, more gentle, reflective moments that are important for any society, things that are morally and ethically appropriate and right and better, um, and fairer and all those things. I think we, you know, I hope, I want to believe most of us still believe those things are important. Um, to Ram's point, we have developed into a society where things feel so precarious for everybody that you've got to look after yourself because if you don't, you're worried no one else is going to. And that I think, without wanting to be too rose-colored glasses or too simplistic about it, is actually the root cause of most of our problems today. The idea that if you win, I have to lose and I don't want to lose, so I'm not going to let you win and so therefore it's all about me. The individualization of society, I think, is one of the great disasters of the last 40 years. And I say disasters not to be hyperbolic. Um, you know, we all like to think Australia was the land of the fair go. Maybe it never actually was in, in absolute terms. We have improved a hell of a lot since on a whole lot of fronts, including for minorities and other people who didn't get a fair go. So, you know, we it was always the land of the fair go for the white bloke, but maybe maybe not everybody else. But <laughs> so those, things we think, those things we think were and are important, I think we've lost because... We've got to the point of saying, uh, you know, Andrew's talking about scratching out a living. That's absolutely true. But there are others who aren't necessarily or shouldn't be scratching out a living who are earning well and truly more than enough to have a comfortable life, who still feel very precarious because of circumstances, whether that's uh, employment certainty or the chance to get another job or being able to pay a stratospheric mortgage or whatever else is happening in those sort of situations. Now, they put themselves in that place. Maybe even they're responsible for it. But when we get to that point as a society, we end up encouraging even oh, I don't even necessarily think it's deliberate but we end up encouraging that idea of like I've got to make look after me because if I don't know one else is going to and I actually think that's the biggest disappointment of the last 40 years if we had more of a sense of I'm going to do what I can for myself and for my neighbours because we'll all pitch in together if things get tough I think we've lost whatever that we used to have and I think that that's the saddest part and that is I think the root cause of a lot of the problems we're having now because you've got to get ahead no matter what uh, I'll look after number one and stuff everybody else becomes the starting point. And I think when you think about politics, policy, um, the role of the media, um, the role of corporations, um, the role of regulators and, and, and legislators, I think there's, there's, it's, not, it's not a single point of failure, it's not a single cause, but it feels like all variations of the same thing. I am, by the way, self-interestedly, <laughs> anyone investing should want for a more prosperous country in 5, 10, 15, and 20 years' time if you want your portfolio to be higher. And the best way to do that, believe it or not, is to make sure that everyone in our society has what they need and can go and be an active part of our society because if you give Gina an extra dollar or Twiggy an extra dollar, 
they're not going to spend it because they've got nothing to spend on. They're, they've already bought their private jets and limousines and whatever, and that's not a criticism of them. But, you know, when Gina earns an extra billion dollars, she's going to say, cool, I'll get an extra billion dollars. That's nice. Now, imagine spreading that money across. I'm not saying we should take it from the rich, by the way. I'm making the point that someone who's not earning what Gina's on or is not as wealthy as Gina, <coughs> who gets an extra dollar, is likely to spend that in the economy. Now, if you are a capitalist, if you want to make money from growing profits from the companies you own, you want people spending money at those businesses. So even purely self-interestedly, <coughs> excuse me, more money in the hands of those who would spend it is actually better for you, believe it or not. If you get past the envy and the greed and the um, otherness of some of these conversations, that is just the reality, right? Just purely, purely self Think about it this way, mate. Think about it this way. If it's all about just being at the top of the pecking order, yep. right, and be damned with the rest of society, <laughs> yeah. if you're even in the, uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. Even if you like, you're, you're in the second quartile of wealth in in the country from the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. There are plenty of countries you could move to where all of a sudden you're now in the one percent. Yeah, that's right. So if that's what matters. Like it's just yeah, being the richest yeah. in society. Well, I ask you, why would you? I'm not going to do that because I don't want to name countries, but you know, there'd be like a dystopian right. nightmare with a full of corruption and and crime and and real safety issues and the rest of it. So Correct. you you there's a couple of things I think the the mm-hmm. the very rich and powerful need to think about. Pakistan got a bit of a taste of this not too long. Was it Sri Lanka? No, Pakistan. Um, is that it's not even being altruistic. It's about mm. saying, yeah, I get totally, that yeah. we all want to be at the top of the pile, but I want to be at the top of a really good pile, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> wealth is all relative anyway. So it's just like I I. I, uh, where I can walk down the street at night, where there's low crime rates, there's low mm. drug rates, there's you know um, all, all the all the kids that go to school together are all you know no one's sort of being left out here. And, you know, I, this is a great thing to have. This is a great, wonderful thing to have. Not just because you've got more customers for your for your factories, but mm. you get to live in in that society. And the other thing you've got to remember too is that the Gene is a classic, right? It's all about her hard work. <laughs> You know, and I don't, I don't deny it, right? Like, okay, whatever, you worked hard, but, but your success was enabled by the society that you lived in. Correct. You could be just as hardworking and, and try, try your luck in the Congo, right? Where everything just would have been confiscated by the government and no one would have ever heard your name before. So, so the society that, uh, that brought you those, I mean, you didn't do it in a vacuum, right? It, mm-hmm. it, and, and I think we all need to sort of recognise that. I've always liked the, the appeal of, I think you, know, I, I, you can debate where the line gets drawn, but I, I really like the idea of progressive tax rates that get quite extreme at high levels. Now, I'm, I mean very high levels, right? The kind of levels that once you get there, you're not going to care that you're paying 80% tax, right? Because you've got that much sort of extra money. I think that's really the, the easiest easiest thing um, to do. But uh, these are all pipe dreams. I, the practicality of the reality of them getting through are, are yep. not likely. So I'm going to finish, mate, just with some some broad thoughts and only because you're invited to and not to take up too much time. I don't blame rich people for being rich and I don't blame them for wanting to be richer necessarily. Um, I, I think you could be... There, there are plenty of rich people. Buffett's going to give away 99% of his wealth on his death. Bill Gates is going to do the same. You know, he's been got rich doing things now. He's, Buffett's giving away more than he was going to. He's going to give it all away on his death. Now he's giving away some more progressively because he wants to use it now rather than wait. And there's There's... Lots of ethical conversation about who do you help and when do you, when do you spend the money. So my point isn't that rich people are bad. Uh, and I think my starting point very clearly is that the rest of us have all of the power in the world to shape the society that we want to live in. 
And you mentioned the free press, Andrew. I will mention things like the people that we vote for, the standards of probity and behavior in parliament that we expect. Um, the fact that these things sound almost like pipe dreams these days is part of the problem, by the way. Yeah, isn't it? Um, yeah. There were there were things, there's, there's, a, there's a set of conventions, which is a bit old and stuffy, called the Westminster traditional, the Westminster conventions. There are, there are centuries old parliamentary um, conventions that are accepted and used to be adopted by both sides of politics to deliver a respectful, reasonable, thoughtful polity. Things like, for example, this is, this is a silly example, but it's also really important, pairing in parliament where if, if a member of you know, the, the Calathumpian party uh, is sick or going to visit a relative or ha has a reason not to be in parliament, the opposition party will say, well, I'm not going to take advantage of that. I'm not going to use my vote on the floor of parliament just because you happen to need to be somewhere else to rush through something that's not in, the, in line with the will of the people. So we're going to give you what they call a pair. They would say, well, if you're not there, I won't vote. I will, I will cancel out the fact you're not there because that's the right and respectful thing to do rather than making you be there just because if you're not, we're going to screw you. Those things, that's a really simple and really almost silly example, but it actually is a really important one because it talks to the norms and the way we think a reasonable society operates. And I guess that's my, my starting point. I think we as a society need to be more aware of and thoughtful of and frankly care more about the way our country is run from those people who are doing it. You know, the people set the rules about how much a billionaire should pay in tax. Is the billionaire's fault for not paying more tax? Not really. No. Can the government change it tomorrow? Of course they could. And, and should they? Yes, they should. And so I think what it, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, the tax cuts that mean we're not spending money on infrastructure or fixing the environment, whether it's uh, the, the way a, a particular politician treats donations or, as, as Stephen said, their ability to jump from politics to, to lobbying and back again because it's, you know, there's some money in it. No, there's um, some no-brain. It's such are... low-hanging fruit in terms of things you could change, right? Right. I mean, I'm just glad the, the current government at least put the National Anti-Corruption Commission in place. We haven't seen it sit yet, but that is a massive, massive step forward to make sure these things don't get out of control. I just think, you know, for all of... To, to the extent you have the opportunity to, and again, Ram said, a lot of people scratching out a living just have to do what they feel like they have to do. The rest of us owe it to ourselves and frankly the society we inherited, right? Like we were given a society not because we were clever or smart or what worked out, we just got born here or happened to arrive here, right? So that's, if you're, if you're in that situation, use your vote thoughtfully and carefully. Vote against your own self-interest sometimes. That, that, isn't, that didn't used to be a surprising thing to say, you know? If I've got to pay more tax but the, the government is going to do better things for the country, then I'm going to vote for that government whether I like it or not. I own shares in Fortescue. I'm going to, I have called regularly on Twitter for meaningfully increased resource rates. Will that hurt Fortescue's profit? Absolutely. Will that hurt the, the, the share price of Fortescue? Absolutely. Do I care? Well, I kind of don't want to be poorer than I could be, but is it the right thing to do? Of course it is. So I'm going to keep doing it, right? And I'm, not, I'm no martyr. I'm no, you know, I'm no Mother Teresa or, or bloody Gandhi. But there's just sometimes there's the right things to do and the right things aren't necessarily always things that make me richer. And that shouldn't be a controversial thing or an unusual thing to say. And I, I feel like, the, to Stephen's point, the more... The, longer, the further we go, the more unusual that is and the, the weirder that seems. The fact that, the fact that self-interest, putting aside self-interest for the, for the national good is unusual or weird or, or somehow makes me un, you know, strange, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah, so it's all about the, oh, and I keep repeating myself, it's always okay. incentives. Get, get, change the incentives. Low-hanging fruit, right? Get rid of uh, corporate donations to political parties. Bam, gone, right? Just, just, just do that. Um, uh, uh, truth in advertising. Like, it just seems like I can't believe that's even a debate that we have to have. It's like, well, I know. Should we have? What do you mean? I have to tell the truth? It's like, well, 
What? What do you mean that you, you were you arguing that you should be able to lie in political? And there's a thousand <laughs> other things that are like that, which right. is, which is, you know, that, I mean, Pocock's talking a lot lately about the access that lobbyists have with the He's passes. Right. That, do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. And then he's just like, he makes such a stupidly obvious point. You kind of think, oh, we're even debating this. Like who, who is on the other side of that debate going, no, I should yep. be able to give lobbyists closed access to all the parliamentarians. What's wrong with that? It's like, if you can't see what's wrong with that, like that's, that's a problem in itself. So yeah, it's, it's diabolically difficult, mate. I, I, I'm, I'm keen to read Murray's book. Actually, I did, I did see it advertised and seems like it I like I like a good book that'll make me shake my fist at the sky so it, it sounds like it's right up that alley <laughs> just loading the gun just loading, just loading the, gun, the guns yeah yeah um, a really quick example and I will shut up um, stage three tax cuts um, oh, I come would benefit on from stage three tax cuts by thousands of dollars a year right uh, uh, is by the way that's that's adding I read the other day that's going to add one and a half percent to inflation uh, yeah. And you know, here we are trying to fight inflation, and yet we're pushing yeah. through this grossly unfair thing. It's going to affect only a very minority. It's like most people are happy with it, even though it only benefits a relatively small number of people. Anyway, yeah. madness. Yeah. Sorry, continue. It's, uh, it, it impacts more people than you would think, but the vast bulk of the benefit goes to people earning over 180 grand. That's right. Why the, the, the thing cuts. Other than so, that, it's reasonably uh, marginal. Yeah, I think I think most people. I think most of the owners benefit very slightly, which is why they do it that way. They've, they've, they've kind of set it up that way. So it seems like uh, everyone loses out if it doesn't get passed so the, the high income owners can get more. Um, but yes, so, you know, the, I, I would benefit from that. Uh, if I had the money, I would invest it. I would be richer in retirement as a result. Uh, I could give even more for my kids. I could give more to charity. There's lots of things I could do with that money. It's actually just still the wrong thing for the country. <laughs> and, you know, I am yet to find almost anybody who will disagree with me other than those who benefit from it. Um, if I talk about it again, I, I'm reasonably um, pro proficient, prolif prolific, both prolific on Twitter. Uh, and I have, I say it regularly, most people agree and a few people disagree and those people largely come from an ideological perspective and whatever, whatever. Uh, and we can have that argument. There's plenty of people listening here who will, won't like, who, who want stage three tax cuts and you're welcome to them. Um, I, I just want to make the point, not that I'm right necessarily. I'm just saying, I think there's something about being able to say, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. Or it's not going to help me, but it's still right. You know, it's easy to find someone who already believes a thing to say that thing over and over again, you know, either direction. When someone says, I will lose if this happens, but it still should happen. Or I wish this piece of economic evidence trickle down, right? I wish trickle down was right. It, it seems like to me it should be a nice idea that if it, if it, if it worked, that'd be lovely for everybody. And I used to think it was the right thing. And then I saw the evidence. I went, actually, it's not right. I, I wish it was true, but it's not. So I have to change mm -hmm. my mind. Mm -hmm. That that mm -hmm. that can be okay, right? That's that's when you start to make progress as a society. So, anyway, long and ranty stuff because Stephen invited us to rant. Um, just to do what you can to do the right thing, even if it hurts sometimes. Just because it just is the right thing. I don't know. I um. Do you know what you want to think about? Yeah. Well, think it's always careful what you wish for, right? I, I would encourage yeah, anyone. Right to go to San Francisco right now. So one of the richest countries in the world, one of the richest mm -hmm. cities in the, in the world, beautiful city. We went there yonks ago. Actually, I wasn't with you at the time. That was a different company. Sorry, <laughs> memories are mixing up, but it was brilliant. Like just, just yep. clean, prosperous, lovely. You can't walk down a lot of places there. There's like tent cities everywhere. There's huge uh, drug problems and, there, and, it, right. and, and and then you go another couple blocks and like the wealth is extreme and you kind of think really yeah. the people in the wealthy gated communities might say well it's all fine for me it's like is it though like look at the life that you you're only safe behind closed doors 
like uh, there's misery all around you. It's just like in a, in a different reality where mm. there was a more equitable society. You're still at the top. You've still got the champagne and the Ferraris. Like what you you can have you can have what you've got because it's just it's arbitrary after a point. It's just like extra yeah. digits in a bank account. Uh, you know, so you, you've still got that, and you don't have to worry about sort of being you know murdered when you go out to 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 the chemist late at night. Anyway. It's a very good point. Let's um let's conclude by agreeing that if we all try a little bit harder to improve society rather than just improving our lot, uh, it's probably a better. Yeah, country nicely to said. I love that. Hey, um, I did talk about Twitter. So let me do that quickly. If you are still listening uh, and you want more, <laughs> to stuff, the four people still listening, <laughs> correct? Uh, that's you and I and our producer and somebody else which is nice so three people uh yeah one, one person who's not one of us is listening uh if you do want to follow us on twitter please do andrew is at sage underscore simian or at strawman invest i am at tmf scott p uh fair warning as i said follow me sometimes for investing ideas sometimes just for public policy stuff because i feel like if i have any sort of voice at all i should use it for good which is probably an old-fashioned thing but uh i figure i could look my mum and dad in the face and uh, and not do the right thing so that's kind of what motivates me um so yes, follow us on, on Twitter, on Instagram, the same, at TMF Scott P, or on Facebook, at uh, facebook.com forward slash Scott Phillips Money. As always, please be careful of uh, imitators. Andrew and I's accounts have both been spoofed in the past, so please be careful of those. Uh, hit us up on email, info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. And with that, with one final rant, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.